Psalm 137. I actually would like, if you would uh, indulge all of us this morning, I'd, I'd like to begin with Psalm 136. And what we did Wednesday night, I'd like to do again this morning and read it as it was intended to be read. That is a responsive reading. So we just have a little fun together this morning. Your part is very simple. You just repeat one sentence 26 times. Can you do that? Okay. My part is to read the rest. So we'll go through this together. Please stick to your part and don't read mine. Uh, no, I'm kidding. As we go through this, the, the Levites would sing this psalm and, and they would divide into two choirs and sing it antiphonally. Uh, back and forth. Um, or the Levitical worship leader would sing a line and then have the whole congregation respond and sing the second line back. So I invite you to do that. And by the way, when we read this, try not to be robots. Try to actually read it with the sense that, that it brings. Okay? If it brings joy to your heart, then, then speak it that way and don't worry if the person beside you is going, dude, settle down, it's early. Okay? Here we go. Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To Him who alone does wonders. To Him who made the heavens with skill. To Him who spread out the earth above the waters. To Him who made the great lights. The sun to rule by day. The moon and the stars to rule by night. (laughs) To Him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn. And brought Israel out from their midst. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who smote great kings and slew mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage. Even a heritage to Israel his servant. Who remembered us in our low estate. And has rescued us from our adversaries. And here we crescendo who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Amen. All right. (laughs) What do you think the point of that psalm is? (laughs) That's a tough one. You really have to search and study to, to pull the meaning out of that one. His loving kindness is everlasting. I love that the psalmist wrote it that way. I love that every single sentence is followed by that declaration. His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, that every sentence of our lives would be followed by that declaration. 
You know, whatever happens, whatever's going on around us, and what's spoken in that psalm, there are some moments of serious threat. Sihon, you know, uh, the king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. These mighty, mighty armies did not want to allow Israel to come into the promised land. But his loving kindness is everlasting. Now from there, the Holy Spirit juxtaposes Psalm 137. It's not a joyful psalm. Psalm 137 is one of painfully poignant longing. And I went with Psalm 136 first because I want you to sense this this contrast. Again, the psalms are placed. They're inspired. They're where they are on purpose. I'm convinced. And we have seen. So we come out of this psalm singing, His loving kindness is everlasting. And we enter Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it, we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy... Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom, the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. You move from the glorious song of the congregation, His loving kindness is everlasting, suddenly to captivity in Babylon. And for the person, the Jewish person, carried off into that captivity, what a stunning difference. To have those memories side by side, the one being there in Jerusalem, singing and enjoying the Father, and then to be in Babylon and in that place. The river of Babylon flooded the civilized world. It came on like a storm in in waves, crashing and conquering the nations with the sheer size and military prowess of the Babylonians. In 609 B.C., Babylon replaced Assyria. It replaced Assyria as a ruling world power after defeating Egypt in, you may recall, you historians, the Battle of Carchemish. In 605 B.C., Judah came under the oppression of Babylon as Jewish people began to be hauled off into captivity in the first of three waves of deportation. At first they were allowed, for the most part, to stay in the land, but some were taken into captivity and puppet kings were set up and Nebuchadnezzar was bearing down on the people of Judah. In 597 B.C., the next wave of exiles were taken into captivity and Zedekiah was set up then as the puppet king of Judah. Zedekiah began to stupidly rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. After all, his loving kindness is everlasting, right? God's loving kindness is everlasting. He's not going to let any bad thing happen to the people of Judah. He couldn't. Oh, we've seen some bad things, but he's going to come through. He's going to save us like he has in the past. God wouldn't let Judah fall, right? Wrong, Zedekiah. Let me read you an inquiry. An interesting inquiry coming out of Jeremiah chapter 21 
Jeremiah 21. You see, Zedekiah, recognizing that Jeremiah was the prophet of doom, decided to send off a, an inquiry to him. And he sent some of his men. And he asked Jeremiah, he says in verse 2, Please inquire of the Lord on our behalf, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is warring against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful acts, so the enemy will withdraw from us. Now Zedekiah had reason to ask the question, because it had happened before. It had happened under the reign of of Hezekiah. It had happened under the reign of Jehoshaphat. These kings were threatened from the outside with vast threats that should have taken Judah apart, and yet the Lord intervened and Judah was saved. So Zedekiah thinks, "Well, well, well, we'll give this a shot. Jeremiah said to them, You shall say to Zedekiah as follows, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am about to turn back the weapons of war which are in your hands with which you are warring against the king of Babylon and the, Chaldone, and the Chaldeans who are besieging you outside the wall. And I will gather them into the center of this city. I myself will war against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm, even in anger and wrath and great indignation. Skip down to verse 8. You shall say to this people, thus says the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who dwells in this city will die by the sword and by famine. And by pestilence. But he who goes out and falls away to the Chaldeans who are besieging you will live, and he will have his own life as booty. For I have set my face against this city for harm and not for good. It will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. And in 586 BC, that's exactly what happened as the temple burned to the ground, as Jerusalem was raised. And by 582, the final deportation was finished. But I thought His loving kindness was everlasting. Don't mistake the patience or the grace of God for impotence to deal with rebellion. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus came and we are living in the church age, the time of grace. Don't mistake all of this grace for a weakening on the part of God against sin. The Lord does deal with sin. The Lord will deal with sin. He does not turn a blind eye to sin. He's not a pushover when it comes to punishment. Zedekiah was among those who figured out, we'll just throw out a simple prayer here last minute. We'll be okay. It'll be cool. They couldn't believe that God would actually allow Judah to fall. But He did. They only saw the immediate circumstance and they had no vision for the big picture. You see, the good news is this. God's loving kindness is everlasting. In other words, it is eternal. It goes beyond the immediate. Sometimes the immediate doesn't feel so good or doesn't seem so right. But God's loving kindness is everlasting. His love, His grace, His mercy is big picture, not little picture. All the people we prayed for and prayed about earlier this morning, all of those situations are immediate circumstance. God's loving kindness is everlasting. And there is coming a day when we will look back and we'll say, praise the Lord, for all your judgments are righteous and true. And that immediate circumstance that was so painful back there in that moment is so nothing compared to the fact that your loving kindness is everlasting. Well, the people sat there in Babylon. Psalm 137 is the psalm of the exiles. It's the only passage 
of Hebrew Scripture that gives such a personal experience of the common Jew in captivity. And that's amazing. Everywhere else, biblically, we leap across 70 years of exile. It's not contained in a book of history. You get to the end of 2 Kings or the end of 2 Chronicles and suddenly you jump. The next book is the book of Ezra. And Ezra is about the people coming back after the exile is now over. And there's no full historical account of the people's experience in Babylon. J. Vernon McGee says, and I, I agree with this, the captivity in Babylon is passed over because in God's plan, His clock stops when His people are out of their land. And you can apply that you Bible students, to places like Daniel chapter 9, which I'm not going to get into this morning. Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the whole book of Jeremiah, is about going into captivity, but Jeremiah was never there. Jeremiah never experienced it himself. He prophesied of the coming exile. He lamented as he watched Jerusalem burn to the ground, but he never went. Ezekiel did. Ezekiel was in Babylonian captivity. In fact, he prophesied from Babylon for 22 years. But Ezekiel's head was always in the clouds of prophecy. He was speaking to the future. He was shown things not that were immediate, but were everlasting, future things to come. Daniel was there. Daniel, you know, went as a young man into Babylon, serving in the courts of Babylon under three different rulers. But Daniel's book also is limited to prophesying to those Gentile rulers about what was to come. And like Ezekiel, seeing the future, we only get little snippets of experience from Daniel, and all of those are very personal to him within the courts of the king. Psalm 137 is unique in all of Scripture because it alone gives us a brief glimpse of the commoner in exile in Babylon. The average Jew who is sitting there by the rivers of Babylon and it's a broken-hearted psalm that asks this question, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing His loving kindness is everlasting by the rivers of Babylon? How does a person do that? By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It was too painful even to sing about Zion. And of course the captors were taunting and and mocking them. Sing us one of your songs. But you see the people of Israel and Zion put away the guitars and the amps and the drum sets and the basses and the keyboards. They set it all aside. They couldn't do it. They would say, we have no songs to sing. Well, they had a backlog of songs. (laughs) Far more even than the 150 we have in the Psalms. They had all kinds of songs they could have sung, but their heart couldn't sing. What makes it worse is the people of Judah knew it was coming. What makes this truly tragic is they knew They were given a sense of this long before it ever happened. In fact, Deuteronomy 28, we see a thousand years earlier. Moses declared the following. Deuteronomy 28, 32. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people while your eyes look on and yearn for them continually, but there will be nothing you can do. A people whom you do not know shall eat up the produce of your ground and all your labors, and you will never be anything but oppressed and crushed continually. And gained from Babylonian captivity to present day, the Jewish people have been pressed and crushed 
continually. 400 years before they went into captivity. At the great dedication day of the temple, we looked at last week briefly, Solomon was there and Solomon is praying to the Lord and he says, when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin, and you are angry with them and deliver them to an enemy so that they take them away captive to a land far off. You see, it wasn't if. It was when. When they sin against you, Solomon prayed. And when you take them into captivity, into a far off land. How did Solomon know? How did Moses know? Well, God was warning the people from the beginning, prior to even their entry into the promised land, that they would lose the land if they sinned against Him. That they would end up in captivity. Notice what Solomon said. He said, when they sin against you, for there is no man who does not sin which casts us all in the same light this morning. It puts us all in the same boat. There is no man who does not sin. You are going to sin. And I hate to say this, but there are some here this very morning who are about to become captive to sin choices that you're considering even now. There's some here this morning who are on the verge or on the edge or stepping into areas of sin in your life and you're about to become captive. You're about to be exiled. And the tragedy is, as with the Jewish people going to Babylon, you know it. You know. Some are in exile right now and you know how it comes out? you got no song to sing. You hang up your harp. You're in a foreign land and your worship becomes stunted. Which is what happens when we are captive to sin. Have you lost your song? I'm asking you to ask yourself this morning. Have you lost your song? Have you known that feeling when you realize you're doing the very thing you were warned not to do? The very thing you knew was wrong before you ever stepped into it. You're doing it now. Or you're in the midst of it. The thing you never believed you would do. That's the most stunning in our lives. We perhaps, I don't know, if you like me, I grew up going to church and there were things I said, I will never do that. And the next thing I knew, I was in the middle of it. It was like, it's like Peter. See, Peter, like the Jewish people in Babylon, suddenly found himself in captivity in a place he never, ever thought he would go. Matthew 26.33, Peter said to Jesus, Though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I've got your back, Jesus. I'm with you. I stand with you. He said that on that Thursday night. The night of Jesus' betrayal. And it wasn't just betrayal by Judas. It was betrayal by all twelve apostles as they fled Him. And Jesus said to Peter, Truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny Me three times. Luke tells us in a stunning picture there that as the night wore on, that Peter was tempted to deny Christ and did so three times. And immediately after the third denial, I don't know this man, suddenly a rooster crowed. And Peter looked up and apparently he was in eyesight of Jesus. Because Luke tells us Jesus looked right at him. And Peter went out and he wept bitterly. Like the Jewish exiles by the rivers of Babylon, weeping. There, as they remembered Zion. So Peter now is out weeping bitterly because he landed himself in a place he swore he would never go. A place he was sure he would never go. Have you been there? 
bitterly disappointed and ashamed that you yourself ended up in the very place you couldn't imagine you would ever be. Listen up. you got to go beyond Babylon. you got to get a vision beyond Babylon. Because even though the rebellion of the Jewish people landed them in captivity, it was a limited captivity, 70 years, because His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is beyond Babylon. Second Chronicles chapter 6, verse 38, Solomon continued in his prayer back there at the temple dedication, and he said, If they return to you with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their captivity, where they have been taken captive and prayed toward their land which you have given to their fathers and the city which you have chosen and toward this house which I have built for your name, then hear from heaven. Well, Solomon prayed that 400 years later. It happened. Daniel, there in Babylon, prayed that prayer. Turned his heart toward Zion. Turned his heart toward Jerusalem, toward the temple, and prayed in the name of God. And God heard. God heard. God hears. God will hear. When we're captive in Babylon. God was not through with the Jew in Babylon. Or in Rome. Or in Auschwitz. God was not through with the Jew. And He's not through with you either. And that's the great peace. That's the amazing reality of His loving kindness being everlasting. You may right now, today, be in the midst of exile. Feeling like there's not a song that you have to sing because of where you are. You, I chose myself to be here. I have no right to worship God. I have no right to feel anything. Here I am in the place that I've chosen. Listen, the Lord says, you're going to fall. There is no man who does not sin. He knows you're going to do it. He knows you have. He knows you will. But what's amazing is that when you do fall, He's not surprised. I can't believe you did this to me. He's not there shaking his finger saying, I told you, I told I warned you, and here you are, doing exactly what I say. See, that's that's what I would do. <laughs> Sorry, boys. No. In fact, before Peter even mouthed his monumental declaration that he would never fall away, you remember what Jesus said? Luke twenty two thirty one, Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew before He sinned that He was going to sin and He was going to repent. And He was going to turn again. And so Jesus laid it all out. Hey, listen, when you fall, know that I've prayed for you. Know that you're going to repent. And then strengthen your brothers. And I love it. One of the sweetest invitations in the Bible is when the angels tell the women at the empty tomb, immediately following Jesus' resurrection, they say, Mark 16, 7, Go tell His disciples and Peter that He's going before you into Galilee and He'll meet you there. Isn't that great? Why add that little moniker? And Peter. Because when the women came into the room and told them, go to Galilee, He's going to meet you there, Peter needed to know he was included in that. Peter needed to know, oh, and Peter, Jesus mentioned you particularly. The angels called you by name. They really want you there. Me? But I'm sitting, as it were, by the rivers of Babylon. i got no song. I'm the one who betrayed Him. I, I... Tell His disciples and Peter... 
Even after his bitter betrayal, Jesus got a message to Peter saying, I'm not done with you. I'm not through with you. And so even the exiles sat by the rivers of Babylon and they wept, but God was not through. And when you yourself are taken captive by sin, you've got to go beyond Babylon. You've got to look beyond Babylon. Because as Peter himself said in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow about His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Truly spoken by a man who had repented and who knew what it was like to sin greatly and turn back to the Lord. If you are in exile right now or if you've got one foot on the line, turn around. Repent. He is inviting you beyond Babylon to the Galilee. He is inviting you to be a source of strength for your brothers or your sisters in Christ. He is calling you back to the place where He is. Now, we can stop right there and that would probably be a great place to end this morning. Repent, let's stand, let's sing, let's worship, and let's go into a time of repentance. But (laughs) there's some more things in this psalm that are very difficult. And we need to deal with them. Verse 5, going on. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. There's something about that city. Something about that city. I'm going to try to avoid giving little plugs for the Israel trip during this teaching. But there is something about that city that causes people like the exile here, to refer to it as his chief joy. It's unlike anywhere I've ever been in the world. Above my chief joy, if I don't exalt Jerusalem for years, there was a phrase, some of you know it, that was spoken after the Passover Seder, at the end of of that meal. And the phrase in Hebrew is, L'shana haba'ah b'yerushalayim, which is next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem, that phrase spoken by the exiles, by the dispersed Jews throughout the nations, every year they would gather for Passover. Every year they would end by saying, next year in Jerusalem, the hope that there might be a Jerusalem Passover again. What's interesting is even now it continues to be sung. Even today, next year in Jerusalem, because there's a longing in the Jewish heart to see Messiah come. And they're saying next year in Jerusalem, perhaps next year is when peace will come. Perhaps perhaps next year is when Messiah will, will rule and will reign. Perhaps next year. What do you pray for the Jewish people? You know, we have verses we looked at a few weeks ago, Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, verse 6 of that psalm. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. How do I go about that? What do I pray for Jewish people? The very simple answer is pray that they may see Yeshua HaMashiach now. Pray that they may see Him now as opposed to then. That they might join in His glorious return to Jerusalem and be part of His church, part of His body. Pray that for them now. That they might not have to go through what we know is coming, the day of Jacob's trouble. That time which is about to come upon the whole world, Jesus said. That time through which only one-third of Jews in that day will survive. Zechariah tells us. That will be a tribulation worse than Babylon or Rome or Auschwitz. Now here's where the psalm gets difficult. Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom. 
the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. O daughter of Babylon, you devastated one. How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Psalm 137 verse 9 is the most brutal statement in all of the Bible. Read it before. It's one that you just <laughs> you read and you come out shaking your head. Wow. It's actually in there. What do you do with this? We've talked about imprecatory psalms before. Imprecatory means to call down a curse. And there's something of that here in this psalm. Coming down to the end of the psalm, the weeping exile saying, Oh, bless me the little one who dashes your, or the one who dashes your little ones against the rock. And obviously it's coming from a place of emotion and it's coming out of a place of pain and yet it is inspired scripture. What do we do with this? Typically when we've looked at the imprecatory psalms, they have somewhat of a military feel to them. You know, fighting the nations. Cursed be our enemies. Take them down on the battlefield. And we're okay with that to a degree. Not that we ever want, as Americans, we never want our military to be lost in battle. But there's an understanding there that they're going into battle to fight and that there will be loss. There is an understanding of, of warfare. But what's difficult to deal with is when it begins to spill over into civilian population. Again, don't misunderstand me. Every loss of life is difficult to deal with. But there are those who don't sign up for it, such as the little ones. How is that fair? How is that right? Uh, This is different, this imprecatory psalm. This is now revenge on the innocent. It's brutality against babies. It's infanticide. At least on the surface, that's what we're reading here. And His loving kindness is everlasting. How does that fit? Three things I think are going on here that I'll give you quickly to consider and think through. First one is this. What we're reading here is a precept of retribution. Number one, a precept of retribution. Now, as we've talked about recently, precepts are directions to be obeyed in a covenant relationship. That's a precept. And there is a precept being expressed here by the exile. A precept that is lawful according to the law of Moses. Israel, in that covenant relationship with God, had certain boundaries, had certain limits, had certain laws and commandments within that covenant. And he is expressing one of these. The anonymous exile here is applying Mosaic law. Now note this. Bashing babies against the rocks was not an original idea with the psalmist. It didn't come from him. The exiles watched it happen as they were drawn out of Jerusalem and taken into Babylonian captivity. Dads were held at bay and watched as Babylonian soldiers tore their infant sons from their mother's arms and either threw them over the wall or bashed them on the stones right there in the presence of mom and dad. It was absolutely brutal. We we don't often have concept of this because we think, oh, they went into captivity. Okay. They didn't go off singing a song holding hands with the Babylonian captors. It was like a big kumbaya moment. It was brutal and bloody beyond what we comprehend in our culture today. They did it first. What the exile is now saying is, let it be done to them as they have done to us. Let it be done to them as they have done to us. Well, that's not biblical. Oh, no. It's called the law 
of retribution. Exodus 21, verse 23. If there is injury, then you shall appoint life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. It sounds brutal, right? Sounds archaic and ancient. You know what we call it today? Human rights. Basic human rights. It wasn't, listen, it wasn't about popping out an eye or or tearing out a tooth or even dashing little one for little one. That's not the point of the law of retribution. The law of retribution was given to deter human rights violations. God said, you better think twice before you murder someone because it will cost you your life. You better think twice before you punch out somebody's eye because it's going to cost you your eye. It's a very different thing. This is not about the brutality of it. It, You know what it is? It's what our prison system and capital punishment used to be about. Deterrence. The whole idea of deterrence. Well, yeah, but didn't Jesus come and change all that? Turn your Bibles to Matthew 5. Let's see what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 5. In that great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus did address the law of retribution directly. In Matthew 5.38, He said the following, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him as as well. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Understand, gang, here's the difference. In the Mosaic Law, God was regulating human behavior. The whole law of retribution, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life, was about putting a stop to the brutality that was going on. You can't just murder someone and get away with it. You can't just bruise somebody and that be okay. If you're going to do this, it's going to happen to you. And God was regulating human behavior, but Jesus comes along now and begins instigating godly behavior. That's the difference. The law of retribution is a regulatory law, similar to the laws we have in our country. Our laws, for the most part, human rights, etc., are about regulating human behavior. But Jesus came along and began to instigate godly behavior. Here's how you're more like your father. Recognizing that law of retribution as being mosaic, Jesus comes along and offers a better way yet. John 1.17 tells us the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law of retribution. And so this precept that we see going on here, for the exile to pray this, he says it very specifically, uh, the recompense with which you have repaid us. He's not asking for anything to happen against the Babylonians that hadn't been done to the people of Judah. And so it was a precept of retribution. By the way, the law of retribution is not antiquated. It's not an Old Testament thing. It is still in play today. It still works out in the way we function as humans. Jesus said in Matthew 17, or 7, verse 2, For in the way you judge, 
you will be judged. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. You see, we live out this law of retribution. You did that to me, I'm going to get you back. Did you hear about the snowblower guy? This cracked me up. guy in the news last week has security cameras because he's in security and they're set up around his house and he, he went out to get his snow shovel because they'd had the bad storm and his shovel was gone. He looked on his security camera film. His, this lady, a neighbor a couple houses down, he sees her walk up onto his porch, take his shovel and leave. So he went out and got his snowblower and blew the snow all over her car. There's nothing but a mound of snow over her car. <laughs> Law of retribution. It is at play today. And we see this going on around us, but we also know, gang, the law of retribution is a physical law. It's also a spiritual law when it comes to sin. Paul said in Galatians 6-7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. You don't just get away with stuff. It comes around. What goes around comes around. It's absolutely true. And this is a reality that the psalmist is recognizing here. Which brings me to my second point. This is what the Babylonians, and by the way, the Edomites got in on this as well, this this baby bashing. This is what they did to Judah. So, this very thing would and did happen to them. Secondly, this is a prophecy of recompense. What the exile is saying is prophetic in essence think about this who is the exile addressing who is he talking to not the ruler he's not addressing the commander or even the soldier he's addressing the one person who would be most grievously affected by what was about to come on Babylon and that is look at it in verse 8 the daughter of Babylon he says oh daughter of Babylon you devastated one How blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. He's saying, and this may sound odd, gang, but it's almost an empathetic warning. It's not as brutal as it may seem on the surface. The exile is saying, Oh, daughter of Babylon, do you have any idea what's coming upon you because of what your army has done to Judah? Do you realize what's coming here? Do you have any sense Do you realize what you are bringing on your own people? Did you know that the American Indian did not originate scalping? They didn't start with them. You know where it started? The American soldier. Because American soldiers looked at that black, silky Native American hair and said, that's a trophy. And in the early days of the the American Indian Wars, as those wars were fought the soldiers would scalp the Indians to take home a trophy of their victories in battle. The Indians responded in kind and began scalping because of what U.S. soldiers did first. That's the thing about retribution. What goes around comes around. You do this to us, guess what? It's going to come back on your own head. And historically, in 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great conquered Babylon. And when he did, gang, historically, the little ones of Babylon were dashed against the rock, exactly as Babylon had done to Judah. What the psalmist proclaims here is absolutely true. Almost prophetic. This is what happened. And by the way, Cyrus was blessed as ruler for conquering Babylon. He was blessed in the overthrow of Babylon just as the exile says, how blessed will be the one who repays you with the recompense with which you have repaid us. 
Just as Isaiah said that Cyrus would be blessed. This is one of those amazing little prophecies, and we know this, it's rooted in history, that Isaiah prophesied this 150 years before Cyrus was born. Isaiah named Cyrus as God's servant who would go after Babylon. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 45, verse 1, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him, to loose the loins of kings. <laughs> I, I, that's just one of those funny biblical phrases for they're going to wet themselves. <laughs> to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name and he's talking to Cyrus and 150 years later Cyrus was born and carried out this very thing and Cyrus was blessed in it Babylon was recompensed with the same recompense that they had paid out to Judah and so what we see in this psalm already is a precept of retribution this was part of Mosaic law but also a prophecy of recompense this is what would and what did happen and it's tough stuff but it's truth And such is the reality of sin in our world. You know, we wouldn't need laws of retribution. We wouldn't even need human rights on the book if it wasn't for sin. Think about it. There was no sin. Why would we need human rights laws? Everyone would treat everybody else perfectly. We'd love each other the way Jesus loved us. We would care for each other. We would put each other first. We wouldn't even have to turn the other cheek because there would be no slapping. (laughs) And it will be that way when Jesus is on the throne. Now, I said there were three things to note. This is the third, and this is, I think, the most practical for you and for me. Every Older Testament story has a New Testament application. Everything we read in the Hebrew Scriptures has application to our lives in marvelous ways. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.11, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Galatians 3.24, Paul said, the law has become our tutor to Christ. Our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. That being the case, how do you take verse 9 and apply it in our lives today? How do we draw relevant application from the dashing of little Babylonians? (laughs) And all of this ancient retribution, number three, a principle of repentance. Now we've already seen this. That the one thing that causes us more than anything else to hang up our harps and weep by the willows and to lose our songs of worship is our captivity to sin. It's when we're sinning. It's when we're in the thick of it. It's when we know where our lives are that we cannot open up and sing praises and worship to God without pain in our hearts even doing so. Sin, like the Babylonian army, takes hold and drags us off into captivity by the rivers of Babylon where our joy is extinguished and and our existence begins to be stripped away. It's what sin does to all of us. And no one is free of this. And we find ourselves in that place where we say, how can I sing the Lord's song in this foreign land? But I want you to think about something this morning. Those big bad Babylonians did not start out that way. 
they all started out as cooing, gurgling, cute little baby Babylonians. They were little Babylonians. Not a harm or a threat to anyone. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And all the exile wants to do is return to Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem! But as long as there is a single little Babylonian alive, there's a threat. From a baby? From an infant? Absolutely. Because little Babylonians become big Babylonians. Little Babylonians become big Babylonians. And that Babylonian soldier that dashed a baby against a rock was at one time a baby himself. Listen to what I'm saying. Please understand. I am speaking spiritually and personally. We have to learn to do away with the little Babylonians. We've got to learn to do away with, with those, those little things that we think, oh, they're harmless. Not a big deal. It's just a little sin. It's just a little corruption. It's just a little problem. It's not a big deal. It's cute. Little Babylonians. James put it this way. James 1.14 Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And, and mark my words, gang. We all are enticed by lust. We all are enticed, but we all have a draw, a lure to different things. That's in our, as long as you're walking around in your carnal, physical body, you are enticed. And we're enticed, we're lured by our own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What happens between the giving birth to sin and the death? The little Babylonian grows up and becomes big and murderous and brutal. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Lust gives birth to sin. Cute little sin. You know, cute little jokes. Cute little movies. Cute little songs. Cute little games. Cute little choices. Cute little relationships. Not a big deal. It's it's cute. It's not a threat. But cute little Babylonians grow up into big, ugly Babylonians. And it was the, we can handle this mentality that led Zedekiah to think the Babylonian problem might just go away. It didn't. It led Peter to proclaim, though everyone else falls away from you, Lord, I will never fall away. And the problem we have today, let me personalize this, the problem I have today in repentance is I don't go far enough. I stop short. Oh, I repent in generality. I repent of the general generic sin life out there. I repent of the the overall kind of negative sin attitude. But those little things are still there. And it's those little things that God is saying, you've got to address them. You've got to deal with them. You have got to destroy the little ones. Again, I'm speaking spiritually. Please don't take this weird. This is not a Muslim mosque. <laughs> Delete that later. Um, <laughs> gang, how do we do this? How do we destroy the little ones? Look at verse 9. How blessed will be the one who seizes and dashes your little ones against the rock. Against the rock. The rock is Jesus Christ. How do we deal with the little sins? We give the little ones to Jesus. We own up to them and we tell Jesus, I'm, this is my lure. Lord, this is my, I know, this is my cute little problem. 
And I've got to give it to you. I've got to dash this against the rock of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, listen, with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. I thought about this verse for years. The way of escape, what is that? The way of escape when I'm tempted. I used to think when I was younger that the way of escape was there would always be a, a door that I could run through. You know, There would always be a way that I could run away quickly or, or be saved. And the thing that always bothered me in this verse was, what if someone takes it the wrong way? That if I'm tempted to a place that I don't think I can handle it, what if they think the way of escape is to take their own life? My question was, What? is the way of escape. I'll tell you what the way is. I am the way, Jesus said. The truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And all this trying, even to deal with the little sins, if you're trying to deal with the little Babylonians by yourself, guess what? You've got to dash them against the rock. You've got to take it to Jesus because He alone has the power to destroy that sin that would catch us and captivate us and draw us into exile. What are the little ones that you're playing around with? They're different for all of us. But we all have our little ones. We all have little Babylonians in our lives. Little cute little things that we do or we're involved in. We think it's not that bad. I'll tell you something. The second I hear coming out of my mouth, it's not that bad, an alarm goes off these days. Not that bad? Well, why am I even saying that? Why am I looking for justification? It's not that bad. I've got to repent. Dash the little ones against the rock. Look beyond Babylon because His loving kindness is everlasting. Amen? Amen. Let's pray and worship Him. Father, we have much to repent of. More possibly than we realized. Because again, we get caught up in the generic form of repentance where we just say, I repent, save me. And yet, Father, to truly repent, there are so many little things we need to hand over to Jesus. Jesus, You are the way. You are our way of escape. You are our protection and our provision. Lord, I just pray You give us strength to hand this to You. To hand over the little sins in our life. To dash them against the rock of Christ. Lord, as we worship You now, would You move in this place and would You convict us of the little ones and give us just the strength to pray them into Your hands and to deal with them honestly today. Here now as we worship You in Jesus' name. Amen.